Hello, and welcome to Off Our Necks, a podcast about women and the law. I'm your host, Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. Off Our Necks is derived from a quote from the abolitionist Sarah Grimke. She was born in 1792 and worked in slavery and fought for women's rights. Her famous quote, which inspired this podcast, was, I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks. My guest today is Tiffany D. Atkins, an assistant professor at Elon Law. We will be discussing her article from the second draft titled Amplifying Diverse Voices, Strategies for Promoting Inclusion in the Law School Classroom. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about your article. So let's start. Your article starts by looking at the American Bar Association data from 2017. And in that survey, it was revealed that 85% of American lawyers are white, 65% are male, and only 5% are African-American. You also looked at data from the Association of American Law Schools, which indicated similar numbers in the legal academy. So let's start with um, talking about that data a little bit. Um, Were you shocked? Were you not surprised? Um, Why is there such low representation of minority students in law schools and then ultimately the legal academy? Well, to the first point about whether I was shocked, um, and that's a twofold answer, a little, but not really. So I'm okay. a black woman and I attended a law school that was predominantly white. Um, so a PWI, predominantly white institutions. And so I had seen firsthand the lack of representation in my law school. There were eight students of color in my law school. And I think five of us were black and those numbers might be incorrect, but it was a very little representation. And when I got out into practice, um, those numbers weren't as apparent. I practiced in a community that had a very large number of African-American lawyers and lawyers of color. But when I got into teaching and looked at the statistics, yes, then I was a bit shocked at the very low percentage of African-American lawyers across the country. And when we get to talking about why that is, there are several different reasons. Um, And this list is certainly not all inclusive, but if you look at the history of how law was exclusive to white, um, oh, Um, we see that there were systemic ways that African-Americans were excluded from the practice of law, right? Pre-1954, Brown versus Board of Education, when segregation, um, the desegregation cases started to come in, they were systematically excluded. And that limited the number of folks of color who could become lawyers. So there's that, right? The history and why there's so little representation. And then that transcends into the lack of representation in teaching, right? Law professors are lawyers. And so when you have students of color who come into the application process and they don't see representation, it often leads to them not thinking it's something that they can do. Then there are finances involved in whether it's something they can afford to do. So there are lots of barriers to entry, both for law students and for folks who think they want to become law professors. So let's talk a little bit about your personal experience, if you don't mind. Um, You mentioned a really low number 
um, in your law school class of uh, students of color. Did you have law professors uh, of color? Um, see that representative in the in the law school classroom in your own experience? There at my law school, there were two black faculty members on um, at our law school. No other representation as far as diversity is involved, as diversity is concerned. Um, so there were just two, and I was not fortunate enough to have classes with either of them. I was very fortunate to become the research assistant for the black woman who was on faculty here. She was later appointed a dean of our law school, and she became sort of an impromptu mentor for me. Uh, So I was her research assistant, but I never had her in my class. But just having her in the building did provide some representation. We had an an admissions dean who was a Black woman, but other than that, there was just no representation in the faculty. And I wonder how this intersects with uh, first-generation law students as well. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of intersection. And so you and I had a chance to talk about this first gen piece, because I think when we're talking about representation in the academy um, with regard to people of color, other minority groups, not just people of color. So women, um, folks who are other abled, when we look at first gen students, that representation piece, I think, is critical. When uh, I think it was Marion Wright Edelman who said you can't be what you don't see. And so when students are considering their career choices, if they don't see that representation in the front of the room, it's often hard for them to think about whether this is something they can do. So for first-gen students who often have those same barriers of students of color, and then if you're a student of color who's also first-gen or you have some other minority status and you're also first-gen, there's that additional layer of just feeling othered and ill-prepared for law school that I think has an ultimate effect on student performance and whether they become professors down the road. Yeah, I was a first-gen student, and and um, I remember coming in, we were told that our class was the first class where women students outnumbered male students. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we graduated that way, but um, we certainly came in that way. Um, but yeah, there really is that sense of um, otherness, like what you talk about, like just not feeling overly prepared, not um, feeling included that I think a lot of first gen students um, feel because they just, this is their first experience. They don't really have those resources to, to access, um, to say, Hey, it is this, how things are supposed to go. What does this mean? Um, things like that. For sure. And I think one thing that With the lack of representation, it leads to stereotype threat. And so the stereotype threat is just people's fear of conforming to the stereotypes that they think people hold about their social group. So if you're first gen and you believe that people don't believe that you should be in the law school setting or they have thoughts about you based on your pers- how you present in the law school space, you're less likely to ask for help because you don't want to confirm what you think people think about you. You don't want to ask a question and get that question wrong because then you worry that people will think that you're not smart. Where students who aren't 
who have representation or maybe have lawyers in their family, they are getting counseled on how to deal with that. They know what to expect. But when you're new or when you're seeing, you know, you're not really being represented, it's difficult to overcome that stereotype threat, which is where I think kind of the amplification piece comes in, particularly on campuses where there is little representation on the faculty. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about that, because your um, article mentions this or really discusses this strategy of amplification. Mm -hmm. Can you define what that term is um, and how it impacts students? Sure. So amplification is not something I can take credit for. It's an article that was written about in the Washington Post, particularly with women in the Obama White House. Uh, Those women found that in meetings, um, something I think a lot of women can relate to, they were being talked over by the men in the group. If they offered a suggestion, that suggestion was appropriated, appropriated by the men in the group and passed off as their own. Women weren't being heard. They weren't getting credit for the ideas. They weren't getting a seat at the table. And so what the women in the White House did is they adopted this strategy. If a woman made a suggestion in a group meeting or a group setting, another woman would take her idea, repeat it back to the group so that it wouldn't get lost and made sure that she would get credit for it. So if Jennifer, if you made a suggestion, I'd say, you guys, Jennifer just offered this suggestion. She thinks that we should do X, Y, Z. Then you affirm it. You know, I think this is a great idea, Jennifer. What do you all think? That's amplification. It's repeating back. It's sharing the experiences of someone else to make sure that that experience or that idea is not lost. Uh, So that's the general idea behind amplification. It's just making sure that folks' experiences and voices are being heard in the large group setting. Uh, And so I I took that idea and applied it to my classroom and kind of created this idea of cultural amplification, that we should be doing the same thing with minority students um, and other students in the law school classrooms. And how did your, your students respond to that? So the first year I did it um, was when I was just beginning teaching and I was suffering under, I mean, crippling imposter syndrome and stereotype <laughs> myself. And so I was grappling. I am totally familiar with imposter syndrome. I'm right there with you. Yeah, it was tough because I had built up a reputation in practice. I was known. I had done my job well. I've been practicing six or seven years. And so I had kind of gotten comfortable finally. And then to switch career tracks and to start over was really scary. And I was wondering, as I was dealing with my own stuff, I was wondering how the folks in my classes were doing, the women in my class, the students of color in my class. And then it made me get aware that the women in my class weren't speaking up much. I was grading their papers. I was meeting with them one-on-one. So I knew they were brilliant, sharp students. But in a classroom setting, they just weren't speaking up. And in that term, we had a very vocal male student. I mean, he answered questions early and often. Even if they were wrong, he was confident enough in his own self that he would just, he was perfectly fine with being wrong, but the women would often wait. And I read the article one day and it just so happens that this was a week we were having one-on-one draft conferences. So I called the students in and with three or four of the women in particular, I shared them with them this article because they were really sharp students. 
And I encourage them to try first amplifying one another. I had not thought yet about my role as an amplifier with them. I challenged them to try the strategy of the White House women in amplifying one another. And really, it was a powerful experiment. Um, that next week, one, it was powerful for, for me to, to be able to say to them, I see you, I hear you, I know that you're adding something to this classroom and I want everyone else to see it. The moment I said that to them, I could see their whole countenance change. It was what they needed in that moment. And I think it gave them the courage to do it in the class. And I think it was that next week, it was it was glorious. I mean, the, the guy spoke up and said something and then one, two, three, I mean, they all spoke up. They supported each other in the classroom. And that trend continued on that whole semester. And I was shocked and proud that one small shift could have such a huge impact on those women and then on the larger classroom. Yeah, I mean, that to me is so impressive because not only will I'm sure that shift continue in your classroom, but I imagine that it gave them enough confidence to trickle down to other classes that they Mm -hmm. were in. I hope so. That's something I should definitely go back and ask those students, were they trying this in other classes? That part I'm not sure of, uh, but I would hope that you're right. They've now gone on and they're practicing and they've passed the bar and you know they're doing great things. And I hope that they are taking that practice with them into the law firms because my next thing I want to do is write this article for law firms. I think that there is a room in all of our spaces to have this conversation. Yeah, that's really fascinating because it really could um, expand to all areas of the legal profession, not just training of young lawyers, but the continuation on in the actual practice. Yeah, I gave this talk once and there were men in the room who said, wow, I've never thought about, have I done that? They'd never even considered bropriation as a thing that they've talked over women. And even in that setting, in the course of me having and giving this 30 minute talk, they started being very careful with the women in the group, being careful not to talk over, being careful to give credit. And I thought this was a start, like this is a spark. If they will now take this back to their law schools and become amplifiers themselves of women and others, I think we can really start to see some change in the academy. I think that's right. And as I was reading your article and and thinking about this and then thinking about that um, Washington Post article, so I teach a women in the law course and um, we talk about um, how in the mid 90s, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg got on the bench, she got a lot of negative press uh, because apparently she talked over one of the male justices and dubbed her rude Ruth and Uh, She just got all of this negative, negative press about, um, you know, how rude she was, how could she Mm -hmm. have done And then later, you know, after research is actually done, you see that it's so much more often the male justices that are, you know, talking over the female justices. And so I think that education piece that you're talking about, you know, even if you're just going and and giving a talk uh, or a CLE about this, you know, just making sure that people understand that this is happening and the ways that they can be amplifiers in their own community. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, 
intersectional as well. So we're, right now we're talking about men to women, but it, when we were talking about the CLE, when you mentioned the CLE, it made me wonder, in my practice, I worked with poor people. I represented folks for free as part of our legal aid organization here in North Carolina. And often attorneys, when talking to poor clients, so when I teach my public interest class, we have to talk about that. When you're speaking to people who are in poverty, be careful that you're not speaking over them. I think that the opportunity to amplify others' experiences can happen, I mean, in a lot of different ways. Are we careful when we're talking to these clients that we're allowing them to keep their agency, right? That this is their decision, empowering them in our representation. Um, so I like that idea of a CLE. I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. It's a way that we can have this conversation more broadly. Yeah, that sounds... so. As I'm thinking this through and other law professors may be hearing this, what are some kind of easy ways that they can go about in their classroom to kind of mimic what you did in yours in terms of being an amplifier for students? So the first thing in the article, I discussed three strategies, the first being direct amplification, the second creating mirrors and windows and the problems that we assign, and then three in the use of technology. Direct amplification is what I described in my example in amplifying you, Jen. Um, When that happens in a classroom setting from professor to student, that is the best way to ameliorate the effects of stereotype threat. If a minority student or even an introverted student, makes the initiative to offer a suggestion, one acknowledging that that's a big deal for them. It probably took a lot for them to make that offer that suggestion or to speak up. And when you amplify them and repeat their suggestion back to the room, it supports them and it tells them that, yes, I have something important to say. So it encourages them, but it also encourages folks in the room who might have misconceptions about that student. And so in the article I talked about, if a student makes a suggestion, I had a student this semester, she's a very sharp student, but she's very shy. She's a woman of color. Uh, We were talking about the cases that were most helpful in a particular argument. And she kind of said it very low that this case she found she thought was useful. And it was useful. And she was the first person to bring it up. And I took that opportunity to, in the entire classroom setting, have her explain the case, why she thought it was helpful. And in that moment, it amplified her to the room and it showed her and everyone else that she had something to say. So that's an example. I will say that You have to be careful when doing that. I have to be careful when doing that because you don't want it to be perceived as favoritism. And so, yes, there are times when I amplify all kinds of students in my classroom, uh, not just students of color or other minority students, because you don't want it to be perceived. But really, those are the students we really have to be careful and we have to look out for because of the stereotype threat. Um, The second strategy is creating mirrors and windows in our problem. And this idea comes from a public school education teacher, and I'm, I'm going to find her name in just a second. But in her scholarship, she wrote about how uh, you have to create mirrors that allow students to see their own experiences reflected back to them and windows which allow others to see into the experiences of others. Uh, so when you're writing a problem, maybe you, you identify the person as being from a particular background. Maybe they're other abled. Maybe um, they're an LGBTQ couple trying to adopt, right? It allows students to get into these problems and to see how someone else's life plays out. 
Then for the minority students in class, when they see themselves included, it allows them to connect with the problem even deeper, right? They have some, they're invested in that problem, I think, a bit more because they're seeing their own experiences reflected. They are the expert at something um, because it's something that they've lived. And then the last is with regard to introverted students, just using technology more so that they're allowed to participate in the classroom without having to speak up in a way that makes them feel, I don't know, that just stresses them out or there's something that they're uncomfortable doing. You can use technologies to allow live polling or other exercises that they include those students without requiring them to speak. Yeah, and in your mirrors and windows piece of your article, I really uh, liked that you brought up, um, you know, updating the problems that we are giving to students, the assessments we are giving to students to really be reflective of, you know, 2020. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point because that makes it that much easier for students to relate um, to that legal issue um, that may actually be facing them or someone in their community. I think that's a really important piece. When I was a student, I just remember when we're having these conversations about Black Acre and owning property. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the middle of Washington, D.C., in a not so great part of town. Home ownership was not a reality. And so these, even the concept of owning property was foreign to me, uh, because it was not my lived experience. And so I try to be very careful. I've done public housing eviction cases. I've done immigration problems. I've done, I mean, a lot of different things just because I want students to have all of their life experiences, you know, brought into the classroom. It does take intention. It does take being, you know, when you're looking at your problem, how can I include a fact or something that triggers awareness for these students to know, like, hey, you're included in this world. Your experiences do matter. Yeah, and I think that's important even for those students that come from a background of privilege to be introduced to those concepts as well. I think that's just a really important um, part of your article and something certainly that um, we should be mindful of. And as you say, I like that, that, that it takes intention to be inclusive and to and to try to educate all students about these issues. It does. It does. I think the payoff is there. I think it's real. It builds empathy in our students. And that's what we want. We want folks who go out, who are able to look at an issue from both sides, who are able to be zealous advocates because they have connected with their client. But they're also in my public interest class when we divide up and I have students who are working in the DA's office. Yeah, sure. You have to put these, you know, potentially marginalized groups in, in jail. But can you prosecute with compassion, right? You've got to do your job, but you can do so with empathy and compassion for the folks that you're working with. And that's what ultimately what the goal is. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and then I just wanted to briefly talk about this technology piece. You mentioned poll, um, poll everywhere in your article. Um, do you students enjoy using that technology in class? I think so. So I'm also an introvert and I hate it being called in class. <laughs> uh, it, 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 I just, it's not normal. It's uncomfortable for me. I'm, I've learned to be quick on my feet, but usually that second or two second pause I take made me feel like everyone thought I was dumb because I didn't know the answer. Well, really, I was just thinking it through. So I think they enjoy it. Um, we do question and answer on poll everywhere. And usually, 
If I do a live question and answer, I might have five brave students who will raise their hand. And usually it's the same students. And I'm mm-hmm. that room and I'm thinking, I know you guys have questions. Like even at the end of my lecture, I've gone from asking, do you have questions to what questions do you have? Because I know you have questions, but they're shy or they don't want others to know that they're unclear on something. Uh, so when I do poll everywhere questions, I have 15, 20 questions. Some of them are very basic that are in the syllabus or, but then some of them are truly issues of um, where they're not understanding the concept. And I want to get to the bottom of that. So uh, we do fun ones. I ask them to respond just using emojis and letting me know how they're feeling that morning. And we're able to talk about it. If someone puts up a sad thing, we're able to talk about like what's happening and not putting one person on the spot. Um, so I think they enjoy it and they can use their cell phones. They can use their computers. They can use really anything um, on the software. And I think they enjoy that. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this. I, I'm going to definitely be thinking about it and how I can uh, use your term of uh, intention more in my classroom along with this idea of amplification. So thank you so much. I'll put a link up of your article as well in the second draft uh, for anyone that is interested in uh, reading about it. But thank you so much for coming on and discussing your article. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being an amplifier yourself and talking about issues with women in the law and choosing to have me. This is an excellent example of amplification. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that as well. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jennifer. And thank you so much for uh, listening to Off Our Next. See you next time.